Turn in your Bibles, or click in your Bibles, as the case might be, to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. Malachi 1, verse 1. We'll begin there in just a moment. Malachi 1, 1. Before we consider God's Word, let's pray and ask His guidance in understanding it. Spirit of God, we do come before you this morning and and ask that you would reveal your Word to us. Make known to us its truths, and as we consider the book of Malachi, and as we consider how he points forward from his time to the time of Jesus, to the Savior, to the Christ, we ask that we would see Jesus through Malachi this morning. Lord, if I say anything that is out of accord with your word, that is not in keeping with what you have said, let it be stricken immediately and forever from our minds so that your truth alone is what we hear and what is proclaimed this morning. We thank you for your mercy to us in your word. We thank you for the way that you have uh, condescended to speak to us and to draw us to yourself. And we thank you that you have chosen us to be your people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our oldest child just barely two, was looking through very large tears at his mom. And while he couldn't express it this way, his face said it all. Mom, if you really love me, why am I going through this? And I can testify that there were a lot of tears in mom's eyes as well that day. You see, his younger sister had been diagnosed with a congenital birth defect in the urinary tract. And so he needed to be tested for it also. And the test was was difficult. For one, he had to lay motionless. um, And you try to get a two-year-old to lay motionless. That meant he was strapped, tied down to the stainless steel table. And a dye had to be injected. And it was a painful and difficult catheterization in the injection of the dye. And there was this strange robot, the imaging machine over him. It had to look like something out of a toddler's worst nightmare. All the noises, all the clicks, all the weird movements. And it was cold, and there were strangers poking and prodding him. And there was mom doing nothing. For all of the world, for everything he could consider in that moment, there was nothing about his circumstance that looked like love. And in fact, from his perspective, everything that was happening to him screamed just the opposite. This isn't love. Mom doesn't love me. What, of course, we understand as adults, that sometimes love takes forms and appears to us in ways that aren't obvious, that are a little difficult to see. We understand that had she taken him off that table and freed him from that test, that would have been the unloving thing. That it was because she loved him that he was in that situation. Because through it, his future was going to be made more sure. The people in Malachi's time were struggling with some of those same issues. As they looked around, they could not see God's love. Look at Malachi 1, starting in verse 1. 
the oracle of the word of the Lord, to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? That's the question on the lips of the people in Malachi's day. Like that child in the midst of that medical procedure, there was very little about their circumstance that seemed to them like love. You know, for centuries now, the nation had been in decline. The glory days of Solomon's empire, stretching from Egypt to the Tigris, is long gone and has been. But at least for a while, there were remnants of that glory. There was a a mighty palace in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem had glorious walls and could defend itself. And there was that temple. And so they, they found themselves able to say, okay, we're not quite what we used to be, but we still have some of the glory of the past. But in Malachi's day, that's all gone. About 150 years before Malachi, the Babylonians came in and flattened Jerusalem. Wall, palace, temple. All of the old marks of strength, all of the old uh, uh, indicators of past glory, wiped out. Taken away. And, to add insult to injury, for most of their history they at least had a descendant of David on the throne. And they could say to themselves, well, yeah, he's not David, but you know, he's got David's blood in him, and maybe one of these generations, with just the right circumstances, we'll see that again, and we'll we'll return to the glory days of David. But not only are the physical remnants of their glory gone, but the person who embodied that glory, the descendant of David, the Davidic dynasty, is also gone. We met Zerubbabel the last couple of weeks, but now this is almost 100 years after Zerubbabel. He's gone. He was a descendant of David. He was a good leader in his own right, but he's also gone from the scene. They are no longer a power on the earth. They are reduced to a few square miles around Jerusalem, to a second-rate, teeny-tiny, no-account temple, to walls that are a mere fraction of what they once were, where they've been rebuilt at all. And they are now a province, and a minor province, in the empire of Persia. How have you loved us? How many of us feel that way at times in our lives? Lord, how have you loved me? I am not getting along with my family. My job is nothing but thorns and thistles. My health is decaying. How have you loved me? You know, one of the things that we've got to remind ourselves is that love does not always come in the way that we think it should. We are not perfect definers of love. We're not all that good at it. But God is. 
And he says, how have I loved you? Keep reading there. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may rebuild, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eye shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. God's love is not manifest in the state or condition of their existence, but in their relationship to him. God chose them to be his people. That's how he loved them. Did you catch that in our Bible readings? If you look back on page 5 of your bulletin in the middle of the Old Testament reading, the Lord set his love on you and chose you. In the New Testament reading, in love he predestined us for adoption. Malachi's point here is that God's love is made known to you in the fact that you have been chosen. Now, Paul quotes this verse in Romans 9, and in Romans 9, 10, and 11, he develops kind of the theology of how God's sovereignty plays out in his choices. And if you're interested in trying to figure out how does man's free will and God's sovereignty and how does it all go together, fit together, go take a look at Romans. And maybe someday we'll look at it together, Lord willing. But that's not Malachi's point. Malachi's point, as he considers God's election, God's choosing, is the love that it expresses. That's Malachi's concern. You know, I'm never going to understand people who are offended by the idea that God chooses. I spent most of my childhood on the playground at recess hoping to be chosen, wanting to be picked. Please, somebody put me on their kickball team. Had I not been so slow and uncoordinated, maybe, maybe I'd have gotten picked. And I get to high school and I try out for an athletic team, or maybe you tried out for the, the spring musical. Tell me, did you want to be chosen or not? Was being chosen a good thing or a bad thing? Then in college, I was really, really hoping that among all of her many suitors, that Becky would choose me. And she did, thankfully. Being chosen is a good thing. Now think about it this way. In each of those illustrations, being chosen depends on something in me. I had to be athletic enough to be picked, or musically talented enough to be picked, or I don't know what criteria Becky used, but she picked me anyway. There was something in me. But the picture here, what do we see in Deuteronomy? God did not choose these people because of something about them. And the New Testament picks up that theme and says, hey, there's nothing in you. It's as if an NBA coach came, found you fat, sitting on your couch, doing nothing, eating potato chips, and said, I'm going to make you the star of the team. 
and then begin to pour himself into you. Nothing in you says NBA star. But God says, I love you and I choose you. We can wrestle with the difficulties of thinking about God's choices and how they interplay with human free will. But for the moment, can we just set that aside and bask in this reality? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have faith in him, if you know him, it's because God loved you and chose you. Not because you were worthy. Not because there was anything wonderful in you or me. But because God is a gracious, loving God. In love, God predestined us and chose us as adoption, for for adoption as sons. By the way, ladies, that sons there, not exclusion of the women, quite the opposite, actually. In that world, only sons could inherit. So when Paul writes to the Ephesian church, he's including all the believers become legally sons so that all can inherit. The promise there is saying we all stand now legally as sons so that we can all inherit the riches of Jesus Christ. In Sunday school later, we're going to be talking about the final judgment. One of the great ironies of the final judgment is that many of us are going to stand there with long lists of sins committed, but rather than receive the punishment those sins deserve, we're going to receive the riches that Christ's righteousness earned. Because we are in him. Chosen by God. Loved by God. And Malachi says, by the way, you're going to know. He gives them a little affirmation to the people of his day. Says, you're going to see this with your own eyes. The nation of Israel, the descendants of Jacob in this text, and the nation of Edom, the descendants of Esau, have very similar histories descending from the same ancestor, Isaac, coming through similar bloodlines, living in the same region of the world, having more or less the same history, except that Edom was never hauled off to slavery in Egypt for 400 years. Both were conquered in the 6th century BC by the Babylonians, and both now are struggling to rebuild. And God says to Israel, let this be a testimony to you so that you will know that I am with you, so that you will know that I have chosen you. You're going to make it. And your neighbor Edom is not. And it was just about this time that Edom vanishes from history as a nation. Isn't that interesting? The promise of Malachi to the people of his day was so that you will know. Watch what happens to Edom. It's an affirmation that God had chosen them. There was no worldly reason why they should make it and Edom not. God did that to encourage their faith. 
How have I loved you? I've chosen you. How does John say it? In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, an atoning sacrifice. That which makes it all right. That's how God loves. By buying people out of sin. By bringing them out of slavery to himself and choosing them. How have I loved you? I chose you and paid the price to make you my own. In verse 6, we read this. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priest, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? Now, some of you are doing the math in your head, and you're saying, if it's taken this long to do the first six verses, we're in trouble. We're going to pick up the pace right now. In response to God's love, the people have despised him. They have not responded appropriately to his love. Let's go quickly through and look at some of the ways they have done this. Uh, Verses 7 and 8, you see there, if you take a chance to read those, you'll see in uh, verses 7 and 8 that they have offered lame and and, uh, unfit sacrifices. They have not brought the very best to God in worship. Now, we don't offer sacrifices in the form of animals today, but the New Testament does take that word sacrifice and apply it to our worship. In a few places, Romans 12, 1, that our bodies are to be given as living sacrifices as our spiritual worship. Do you think of your body in that regard, and do you use it to the glory of God? And do you keep it pure, unmarked? Keep it from being uh, damaged by sin? Even little things like going to bed early enough on Saturday that you're actually awake during the service on Sunday. What What a simple little sacrifice that probably doesn't even cross our minds. To say, how do I get my body to be an appropriate sacrifice of worship? You know, uh, uh, Paul in Philippians refers to himself as a a sacrifice, a drink offering that's poured out. Why? For the sake of the Philippians, so that they might be saved. Do you use your physical existence as a testimony that others might know the gospel? In Hebrews, we see the idea that we should offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Sacrifice of praise. I hear that term used and thrown around, but kind of casually without regard to the real meaning of sacrifice. What does it cost us in order to praise God? I went through a time in my life where I was not willing to bear the cost of embarrassment in order to open my mouth wide enough to sing his praises. I'm going to be off key. I'm going to come in at the wrong time. I'm going to make some musical mistake, and I'm going to be embarrassed. And I wasn't willing to sacrifice my self-image so that I could praise God. 
The sacrifice of praise is something we ought to consider. Going back to Malachi in chapter 1, verse 13, uh, they offer sacrifices that were taken by violence, it says. In other words, it didn't cost them anything. They're being generous with somebody else's sheep. They've stolen from their neighbor, and they're given out of what they've stolen. It's always interesting to me how generous people are with somebody else's money. This is a call to be generous with the Lord from that which cost us. Giving not out of our excess, not out of the overflow of his abundant gifts to us, but rather out of something that actually costs us. Chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Um, we see there the idea that God uh, detests, there's a description there of how God uh, detests those who worship in this way. And in fact, he is going to regard them as the yuck from the sacrifices, as the inner disgust. If you've ever butchered or cleaned an animal, there's some nasty involved there. And God is saying, when you worship in this half-hearted way, you come across to me as that nasty stuff. 217. 217 is worth taking a quick look at here. Um, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. When we begin to redefine good and evil so that it fits what we like, we, we offer up corrupt worship. We despise God. You know, when this happens out there, it's pretty easy to see. When the world does this, we're pretty quick to recognize it. Oh, they're talking about, they're, they're making homosexuality equal with heterosexuality, and they're putting it right alongside. What a perversion of what God has created. That's true. Can we see it in ourselves? The subtle little ways where we side with a loved one rather than siding with the truth. Some years ago, I was serving as an elder with, uh, in a situation where one of my fellow elders, his son was turning from the Lord and walking away in all manner of ways. And the church had to address it and deal with it. And in so many of these situations, what do you see? You see the person begin to justify and excuse their loved one's bad behavior. Explain it away, or even explain how it's good. And what an amazing thing when this elder said, I love my son, but I love God more. And the only good thing for my son is that he hear the truth of God. And rather than calling evil good, rather than despising God, he stood up and said, no, we have to hold my son accountable. Do not despise God by calling evil good. How have we despised your name when we offer worship that costs us nothing, when we do not offer our bodies up as living sacrifices to God, when we do not stand for truth, even when it's up close and personal. 
So something interesting happens as this is unfolding. As Malachi is describing all of this, look at chapter 3, verse 2. What do we see there in chapter 3, verse 2? But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? Malachi has described their polluted, corrupted worship, and some among them have said, well, then we are in trouble. For no matter how hard we try, we are all guilty of some of this. I don't care what I, what, what, you know, that list I just went through, the way I talked about it applying to us today, all of us are guilty of something on that list at some point. So now we are in trouble. If this is what God requires of us, then when he comes, who can endure? Who can stand? Who has any hope? Keep reading there in chapter 3. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and in the former years. One of the interesting things it says here is that when the Lord comes, in the day of his coming, at that very moment that no one can stand, no one can endure, God is not going to come just to destroy. The day of the Lord, the day of his coming, is not merely a day of destruction. But rather, he will enable some to stand. He will refine some as silver is refined. He will clean them as soap cleans things. So that from God will come what is necessary to worship God. God will provide what is needed so that we might go to God. God will provide for us the worship that is not despising his name but lifts up his name. We skip down to verse 16 in chapter 3. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. The faithful people in Malachi's day, or at least some of the faithful people in Malachi's day, have gathered together... And they have said, probably in response to Malachi's preaching, although it's not exactly clear, they have said, wow, this is a problem. And they seem to have come together and put their names down in some way. This idea, um, a book of remembrance was written. Some commentators will say the Lord is the one writing that book of remembrance. Some commentators say, and I tend to lean toward the second one, that the people are writing that down. That they've gathered, they've talked about these things, they've said, no, Malachi is right. We've got to repent. And in a testimony to one another, I will stand with the truth that Malachi is preaching. I put my name here. And the next one comes up and says, and I will add my name. The next one comes up and says, I will add my name. And that they have covenanted together to stand with each other for the truth that Malachi is proclaiming. 
So then something wonderful happens. Look at verse 17. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Personally, I don't love the chapter break coming right here. Chapter 4 really does continue the discussion of this distinction between the wicked and the righteous. So let's keep reading in chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Notice a couple of things. One, we have seen this idea of fearing God's name now a couple of times. This distinction that those who, are, who will be purified, those who, who will be cleansed by the fuller soap, refined by the, as silver in the fire, are those who fear the name of God. In the one passage, it talks about esteeming his name. And the other thing we see here is that those who do so, those who fear the name of the Lord, those who esteem the name of the Lord, will be healed. That also is a thread through this. Some sort of fixing it, making it right. Whether it's the refinement of the silver, or the the washing with the fuller's soap, or hear the, the uh, 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 idea of healing, one way or another, those who fear the Lord will be fixed, will be made right. The pollution that's found in them, the imperfections that are in them, will be taken away. By the way, that is a hope that's talked about in the New Testament, Ephesians 5. The Lord is going to purify the church to present her as an unblemished bride to Jesus Christ, her bridegroom. We see this idea of purification. So what we have here is, a, is this, God is starting a dialogue. You remember back in Habakkuk a few weeks ago, Habakkuk initiates a dialogue with God. This one, God comes to the people and initiates the dialogue through Malachi and says, I've loved you guys. And they said, how have you loved us? And he says, how have I loved you? I chose you. I've made you mine. He then says, but you despise me. And they say, how do we despise you? And we saw some of the ways that that despising plays out. And then some among them realize that because we've despised God, we have no hope of being able to stand in the day of the Lord. We cannot endure the day of the Lord. And then the Lord responds, no, in that day, the one who comes will purify those who are mine. You don't have to worry about being able to stand you will be purified and made clean. You will be healed. Well, then for sure, we don't want to miss the day of the Lord, do we? We don't want to be surprised by its coming. We want to be able to look forward to it. We want to be able to recognize that it's on its way. In Malachi 3.1, we see an initial comment about how to mark the day. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. 
That was what initiated this whole question about who can endure in the day of the Lord. That comment right there. I skipped over it earlier, but now we see it. But then Malachi, as he continues to write, as he rounds things out, as he gets ready to close out his writing, as God gets ready to close out the Old Testament. Look at chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. You know, Zechariah last week, we saw how Zechariah made a point of telling us the markers of the, of the first coming of the Lord, of the beginning of the day of the Lord. He said, hey, listen, your king will come to you on a donkey. He will be a rejected king. He will be a pierced king. He'll be a king that's traded for 30 pieces of silver. We see all of those things fulfilled in Jesus' life here on the earth. And Zechariah points out to us that the second coming needs no uh, 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 indicators. It needs no help recognizing it. The second coming, everybody will recognize But Malachi, in a similar way, says, yeah, you need to know about the first coming. Because you can miss it if you're not careful. How sad. Apart from Jewish Christians, I'm not sure I've ever met a Jew who has any hope of the Messiah's coming. Most of them, it's it's a religion that looks purely backwards to tradition. And has no hope in the future. Why? Because they miss... Malachi and the others, they miss Malachi saying, here's how you know when the promised one comes to his temple. When the Messiah comes to the earth, I'm marking him out by sending a forerunner that says, here he is. So you know he's here. The forerunner, Malachi, metaphorically calls Elijah. So fast forward 450, 60 years to the time of Jesus and John the Baptist. And these two amazing preachers, these two teachers are out there uh, doing amazing things, converting people, turning the hearts of people, as foretold here, and there's some confusion. Is one of these the promised one? Is one of these the Messiah? And the people go to the desert and they go to John and they ask him, are you the Messiah? But the Apostle John, this can get confusing if we don't pay attention here, the Apostle John notes that about John the Baptist, chapter 1, verse 20 of John, he confessed, John confessed and did not deny, but confessed openly, I am not the Christ. But he did say, I'm the one here to tell you about him. The one who comes after me, one whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And they asked John, well then, are you the promised Elijah? And John seems to have gotten it wrong here. He actually says, no, I'm not Elijah. But Jesus, later, during the same confusion, the same questioning, who are you, what's going on? Jesus is recorded in Matthew 11 as saying this, For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah. Who is to come? If John is Elijah, and John pointed to the one coming after him, then who is Jesus? Malachi says, 
that the Lord is sending a messenger, and then the Lord, Yahweh, will appear in his temple. Anybody who ever says that Jesus was not actually God has not paid attention to the scriptures. For Malachi says that the one who comes after Elijah will be the Lord, Yahweh, God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, God of the Old Testament, not God the Father, don't make that confusion, but God nonetheless. And he comes while Jesus, the God-man, is strictly a New Testament entity. God the Son has been there since the beginning. The Bible opens up with, in the beginning, God. John comes along and says, in the beginning, the Word was with God. God the Son has been for as long as God has been because He is God. And the one whom Elijah foretells, the one who John the Baptist points to, is the Lord coming to his temple. And he comes graciously the first time so that we might be refined, so that we might be purified, so that we might bask in his righteousness, so that we might rejoice in his suffering in our place, so that we might look forward to a day When the question is asked, who can endure the day of the Lord's coming? And we will say, I can. Not because I'm that good. I wasn't chosen because of my skills or my abilities or or anything in me. But because he loved me. He called me. He elected me. He put me in Jesus Christ so that I can endure the day of his coming. So that when that day of final judgment occurs, when God turns to me and goes to hold me accountable for all that I've done in this lifetime, I can say I've done this one thing. I believed in Jesus. And something amazing happens in the New Testament. The judge becomes the defense attorney. The judge becomes the advocate of those who are his. So that when Jesus is judging, when it comes my turn, he's going to jump off the bench, he's going to run around to my side and say, I stand here for him. He's righteous in me. I mean, what a winning solution to have both the judge and the defense attorney be the same guy on your side. That is the future Malachi points to. We live in the part way beyond that. I don't want to say it's in our past, because part of this is still out in our future. But the day of the Lord has has begun. Elijah came and pointed us to Jesus. That Jesus through whom we are called. That Jesus through whom we are loved. That Jesus through whom we are chosen. That's why we worship. That's why we we rejoice. That's why we sing songs of praise. That's why we're willing to risk embarrassment to tell other people. That's why we're willing to give sacrificially and to fall on our knees in humble petition and and beg forgiveness for our sins. Because this is what's been done for us. This is how we've been loved. That we could be purified and made right 
through the suffering of Jesus Christ. What a glorious message from Malachi. Let's pray. Lord, through the prophet Malachi, let us see Jesus and recognize the characteristics that Malachi describes, that he came the first time to purify and cleanse those who are his, to wash them with his blood so that they would not worship in a way that was despising God's name, but so that we could worship in a way that pleases you through him. Let us be a people who look forward to the day when this will be made complete, when our, our faith will be sight, when we will be able to, to look directly into the face of the one who has saved us. Until then, encourage us, strengthen us, make us stronger in these things. And teach us to look forward in hope to the second day of his coming. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.